gathered together from the cosmic reaches of the universe, here in this great hall of justice. Superheroes have to be around other superheroes. You know what I mean? That's the Hall of Justice is more about them just commiserating about their powers and less about them like actually fighting crime. So what uh what is this place anyway? Is this some type of fancy DMV? Are you kidding? It's the Hall of Justice. Seth Everett is the best there is at what he does, bub. And what he does is the Hall of Justice podcast. Go, go, go with a smile. Welcome to the Hall of Justice podcast. This is episode 356, and this is the first one of the month of November. This whole month is going to be about Marvel. I know the name Hall of Justice, people think it's a DC podcast, but we've done Marvel throughout the years, a lot of it, to be honest. Later this month, we are going to review the new movie, The Marvels, we have an episode planned for that. We are also going to review the Disney Plus series that is just wrapping up, Loki. We have an episode planned for that. I recently saw a docuseries on Hulu uh, from Vice Media. Uh, it's part of their Icons Unearthed series. I guess they have the, uh, a bunch of them. And it's all about Marvel Studios. And it went back to the origin on how a comic book company, which had been licensing out its characters to other movie studios, namely the X-Men and Spider-Man, and got to make their own movie, Iron Man. They subsequently made The Incredible Hulk. That's the Ed Norton Incredible Hulk, to very, very mixed reviews, and their financial status hinged on it. The docuseries goes all the way through the Disney purchase, and it encompasses most of phase one and phase two. I said, what a fascinating discussion. If only there was somebody that we could talk to about something like that. A friend of mine and a huge supporter of the podcast recommended our guest today. Not only does she write for Sci-Fi Wire, IGN, Paste, SFX Magazine, and countless others, she has authored 32 books. But one of her books, this massive project, caught my eye. It's called The Story of Marvel Studios, The Making of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. It was co-authored by Tara Bennett and Paul Terry. Kevin Feige writes the forward, and it came out in 2021. Tara and Paul were embedded in the Marvel Studios, as you'll hear in the podcast, and they have the complete production history from Iron Man in 2008 up through 2019, which is Avengers Endgame and Spider-Man Far From Home. We also will talk about after Spider-Man Far From Home, which is phase four and the supposed slump that Marvel's in. Tara, you are a glutton for punishment. Thank you so much for coming on this show. Uh, I've been wanting to do this type of episode and having you for this after seeing the book that you put together that is, by the way, heavy as hell. <laughs> Thanks for coming on. Seth, thank you so much for having me. It's 11 pounds of love. Uh, so, oh, you know, That's awesome. <laughs> it's, it's, we call it the lap breaker. Um, if anybody is enjoying uh, reading it, and then we're also using it as a coffee table, literally. You're <laughs> it like can Kramer. Be, 
multiple it's multifunctional but um yeah no thank you so much for having me uh, it's 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 great um you know the 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 focus on this is the marvel studios Mm-hmm. And I thought it was very interesting to see um, there have been a lot. There has been a lot written in the last, I want to say, six months to a year mm-hmm. that Marvel is in a slump. Mm-hmm. And Bob Iger came out during a CNBC in, uh, interview and said, uh, well, people have superhero fatigue. Yeah. Before we get into the beginning, I, I didn't want to do this in chronological order. Sure. Number one, do you think Marvel's in what they call a slump? And do you believe in superhero fatigue? Because my theory, just just to put it out there, is that if something's great, there's no such thing as superhero fatigue. Yeah, I 100% agree with you. I mean, uh, you know, the Spider-Verse movies uh, have people coming out of the woodwork to come and see them because the stories are amazing, you know, and they reinvent things and reinvent uh, the things that... um, uh, that maybe tropes uh, went done poorly and then are ra- really fresh when are, are handled in a, in, a, in a different way. Even Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, you know, uh, I feel like that was a really great um, uh, uh, kind of not so much rebooting, but just revisioning of uh, a, a constantly uh, rebooted <laughs> franchise. I mean, I think every single generation technically has their version of the turtles that they either watched in movie theaters or watched on, on syndicated television or Nickelodeon or whatever. Um, and it was a brilliant way of being able, like, you know, to literally have teenagers voicing <laughs> the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Like that in itself gave it all kinds of authenticity and freshness. So yeah, I, I'm 100% with you. I don't think that there's such a thing as uh as superhero fatigue because all of our stories are relatively finite you know they're variations on the same theme it just really is a uh, different dressing and sometimes with spandex and sometimes not with spandex um but yeah no i think you know um marvel studios had a, a singularly out of the ordinary uh meteoric rise from essentially getting the opportunity through um uh finance and capital to take the licenses back for certain characters and make their own movies instead of licensing them all out to other studios to make them bring the, the toys uh, partially at that time back into the into their own playground and sandbox and then uh, had essentially two movies that had to be successful or that big grand experiment was going to be a big old dud and they weren't going to make anything else and it was Iron Man and Hulk and Iron Man was the movie that came out first and it uh, made a tremendous amount of money and essentially put a um, obscure by mainstream standards character of Iron Man on the mainstream um, recognition factor and excitement on the global uh, stage. And then, you know, Hulk was a lesser movie, but it still made its money back. And then every success allowed money to go back into the coffers to pay what they had to in order for that that whole financing deal to not suck them under. And then it became um, a, literally a string of three phases of movies that were not all perfect, but all of them made money and all of them, uh, you know, if there were mistakes made, then they kind of uh, reoriented and tried to not repeat those mistakes. And that was like, that was one heck of a run. And I, I don't think that's sustainable forever. <laughs> Just honestly, in, in the in the, the way life works, um, you're, you're, uh, the wheels uh, sometimes are gonna get real squeaky or sometimes they're gonna come off so here or there. You gotta do some fixing to work that out. and and. Uh, I think they went through three phases of incredible success and ascension and then 
phase four had, uh, you know, kind of a mixed bag. And then, you know, this has been, I would say, mid phase four into, into five has been the least successful um, of what they've been doing. And, and I think there are some very, very specific reasons from that, you know, um, Paul Terry, my co writer and I on the on the story of Marvel Studios, we were embedded at Marvel Studios, we had our own, we had two offices, and we were there for essentially two years. And uh, we were watching the culture. It's not just, oh, someone reported on the culture. We were in the culture. Wow. We saw how those meetings worked. We saw how they interacted with each other. We saw how they moved around. We went to their sets. We saw then how they worked in, in action. Um, and we also you know, knew, uh, even at that time, that uh, they were pushing towards the the time that we were there, they were pushing towards three movies a year. And that was making everything rattle <laughs> because it was three movies. And, you know, everybody's like, can we do it? Can we do it? But three you had movies? to relinquish creative control to the individual filmmakers. And that's kind of been the whole theme of the whole thing, that each director makes their statement. It's their movie as much as it is chapters of a Marvel book. Yeah. And I think that that's where people's tastes get mixed because you, you, you used Iron Man and the Incredible Hulk as the example. They're very different films. Yes, they're very different films. Very, very. Uh, but I would even say lesser than it being the taste of the director that's brought in. I would say volume is the thing that really is, is kind of kicked their butt in the last year, uh, last two phases, I would say. Because They'd, you throw in the TV shows also? When you do three movies and you're already with a very finite group of people that have come up through through all 23 of those original movies, working on each other's projects, being each other's voice of quality, being on set, Kevin being able to, to be able to, to really be hands-on with all of those projects along with Lou Desposito and Victoria Alonso. Um, there, that was that was maintainable. And then when Bob Iger came in and we were there, we were there when like uh, when they they were already developing WandaVision and uh, Falcon Winter Soldier while we were still in, in the office there. Uh -huh. um, they were they were, you know, it was exciting to now suddenly have streaming. But the realities of making that many television shows, which is essentially the way that they like they're making it. six six hour movies. Six, six hour movies. I mean, when you think about that, it was three movies, then plus six like three movies for every television show. That's yeah. essentially the workload of that. Then still keeping up the slate of movies, <laughs> which you know they're not short. They don't make forty five you know like ninety right. minute movies. Right. Um, all the thing we really saw was that the finite group of people that like, listen, we saw so many people hired from within that went from like literally front desk to being mentored to going up the producing track, which is really wonderful that, you know, you're teaching the, the Marvel Studios way. But then when that volume hit, you now suddenly had to bring in all kinds of outside people. Mm -hmm. And maybe those people didn't understand what was the alchemy of why those is that when you get worked. eternals is that how you get eternals and i think it just yeah i mean nate nate moore was on that movie but i think what happens is that it's too many things at once so what was normally the parliament which is anybody watches the credits it's the people that have been there through the the from the very beginning and that have the kind of council of people that uh executive producers that work on each other's uh projects and oversight and and have been there and understand the culture of what they're trying to make um you just get you get it's too thin you spread too thin even when you have and your things own start movie. to slip through the cracks yeah, that, that things, connect the dots for and things. it's just volume i mean I, I, there's been lots of stories about the vfx 
And when you're making three movies and you know you are vendoring out to some of the, the best VFX houses out there for certain things that you need, whether it's, you know, making, you know, Josh Brolin into uh, Thanos and making that look good, or whether it's, you know, uh, any of the, the, the characters, you know, that, you, that, that are digital characters or, or environments. Um, when you suddenly now are working twice as big, plus there's other things out in the world that need those vendors, it suddenly becomes um, an asset issue. You don't have enough people that understand how Marvel does things. You don't have some of the companies that you may have worked with and trusted because they're on other gigs. Um, they, they can't do your thing because they're already working on two other things for you. So it, it's really, um, it was, it's really um, too much, too much for uh, what they had held very tight and close through the whole time we were making the book, which is uh, quality and our hands touch everything. And you know, um, it was it was Bob Iger that came in and said, hey, let's plaster D, D plus with all of these Marvel projects, too. And listen, they're they're enthusiastic about being asked to do it. But then the execution of it is an entirely different thing. And I think that's what we're seeing. People often ask me, how do I keep motivated? And uh, how do I keep my spirits up? Well, things are, are moving forward instead of backwards. I think every neuroscientist in the world, if you lined them all up and asked them the same question, can the spinal cord be repaired? They'd say yes. That is the voice of Christopher Reeve. Whether this is your first time ever hearing the Hall of Justice or you've listened to over 300 of the episodes that we've put together since this podcast was created in 2015, the superhero genre owes a great deal to the role Christopher Reed played as Superman. Partnering with the Christopher and Dana Reeve Foundation is an honor for the Hall of Justice podcast. In 1995... The accomplished actor was paralyzed after being thrown from a horse during an equestrian competition. After his accident, he lobbied for spinal injury research, and that led the man who once played Superman to the foundation that bears his name. Here's the origin story from the foundation's CEO, Maggie Goldberg. So when Christopher Reeve was injured in 1995, he was looking at all of the other organizations in the country and really around the world. Um, and there weren't that many that were searching for cures and treatments for spinal cord injury. And what he loved about our organization at the time, which was the American Paralysis Association, is that we were funding research. We, we, our mission and sort of theme was considered a laboratory without walls. We wanted to fund the best research no matter where it was in the world. And one of the other parts of the mission was bringing researchers together and to share information, which wasn't really something that was done at the time. Researchers you know, can be very competitive. They hold their information close to the vest. So I think that's what really drew him um, most to this organization. The Christopher and Dana Reeve Foundation is dedicated to curing spinal cord injury by advancing innovative research and improving the quality of life for individuals and families impacted by paralysis. We are on the cusp of a new era in spinal cord injury, where real cures are within reach. The Reeve Foundation serves as a catalyst at this critical moment 
uniting academics, scientists, and industry in a new model of collaboration. The Christopher and Dana Reed Foundation is really the only national paralysis foundation focused on a dual mission. Today's care, tomorrow's cure. We are searching for cures and treatments for spinal cord injury, paralysis caused by spinal cord injury, but we also provide services and programs for people impacted by all types of mobility impairments. So when you think about paralysis, it's not just spinal cord injury, it's stroke, ALS, MS, um, in addition to spinal cord injury. And we're here to really help people navigate their journey through paralysis, whether or not they were diagnosed or impacted from you know, yesterday, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. This partnership is not the only tie Christopher Reeve has had with this podcast, even though it was created 11 years after his passing in 2004. In the 1970s at Juilliard, Christopher Reeve was good friends with Kevin Conroy. Little did they know then that while Christopher Reeve would be the embodiment of Superman, Kevin Conroy would be known as the voice of Batman. And Kevin was kind enough to come on this podcast during his illustrious career five times. Tragically, Dana Reeve passed away in 2006, and the foundation was renamed the Christopher and Dana Reeve Foundation. I asked CEO Maggie Goldberg how listeners of the Hall of Justice podcast can participate and help the Christopher and Dana Reeve Foundation. There are many ways to get involved. The easiest is to go to our website at ChristopherReeve.org. You can also follow us on social media. Our handle is at Reeve Foundation. Um, there, you could become an advocate. You can run a marathon and join Team Reeve. You can become a fundraiser. You can help us spread the word. You can become a volunteer. All of that is outlined at ChristopherReeve.org and we invite you to become part of our family. In the weeks and months to come, we are going to organize some walks and some activities that can raise money for the Christopher and Dana Reeve Foundation. But for now, if you are hearing this for the first time, the fifth time, or the tenth time, go to ChristopherReeve.org, get the newsletter, and find resources in your area. I'd like to think that if we had this podcast in the time that Christopher Reeve was alive, he'd want to be a part of it. He'd want to be a part of the show. And he'd want us to spread the word about this foundation. Thanks to you, the listeners, we are going to do that. I think in order to accomplish something, somebody has to go out there and put out a vision that makes it seem more real, more tangible. disclosure i've told this story on the podcast 200 times um my wife used to work for marvel she worked in licensing and she worked there uh, people ask me when did she work there spider-man 3 that's when she started yeah that's the context i remember she came to our apartment at the time and said marvel's gonna finance their own movie this Mm -hmm. is pre-disney yeah and this is months before Favreau or Robert Downey Jr. is connected to the project. She says to me, just in passing, this I the, the Hall of Justice podcast wasn't a, a glimmer in my eye. Mm-hmm. She said they're going to 
do Iron Man? And I go, that's the stupidest idea I've ever heard. Have you ever read an Iron Man comic book that's good? The only time he's been half interesting, he was drunk. The cartoons that they have done have been awful. And you're going to take this C-level character and make a movie out of him. What I thought was so original about that movie was they took the essence of the character, but they said his origin, if, we, if we're if we faithful completely to the comic book, we will have a boring story yeah. and modernized it and jazzed it and charmed it and created a hit. What was your thought going in and what were you able to ascertain about the risk that that was and why did the decisions that got made work? Yeah, no, I agree with you. I, I um, am a long-term San Diego Comic-Con uh, journo um, veteran. And so I was there uh, uh, from 2003 um, until the pandemic. So 2019. So every single summer I was there. And so I was in the room uh, when they showed the Iron Man footage for the very first time in Hall H. And um, you know, I, like that. This has been my job for for, for twenty years: is following pop culture, uh, is uh, assessing when I'd go to San Diego. What was I excited about going in, and then what was I excited about coming out? And I was in the same exact place. I was like, Iron Man. What? Why? No one knows Iron Man. What? Who cares? So I came into Hall H genuinely curious. You know, because I'd watched plenty a sizzle reel at San Diego Comic Con where I went, thumbs down, baby. But you saw the X-Men movies. You saw X2. Yeah, yeah. No, and I love the X-Men Spider-Man 1 and Spider-Man 2. Yes. Those are brilliant movies. Absolutely. And 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 knowing what my own bar was for, it better it better make me feel like that made me feel or that trailer made me feel. Um, and even like non-superhero, you better make me like go woo and walk out and be excited about covering it when it comes down the pike. And so I was in the room, watched that footage and went, oh, 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 okay. I see what they're doing here. And Robert's really good, really good in this footage. And um, had the chance to see them run the footage again and then walked out of that Comic-Con going, I actually am excited about it. And I'm really, really curious as to the outside world is going to be a me who walked in going, "Mm, what are you doing to, oh, now I can't wait to see this. And so that was, I was exactly in the same place as you. I was like, uh, I don't know what they're doing. And then walked out and went, oh, that's, that's pretty, that's pretty exciting. And Robert's, you know, and just that short amount of footage really felt like he was owning, you know, what they were doing with that character. And so, yeah, I, and then seeing the movie, being excited to see the movie uh, based on what I had seen in San Diego and the, and the commensurate buzz, and was really blown away by what John and, and Robert and what Marvel Studios, uh, you know, pulled off with a, a C-list character, as you said, that does not have the, the touch of a Spider-Man or an X-Men, uh, any of those characters who had been established well and maybe had come from more obscure places. And I was like, they pulled it off, you know, and, and they really did. To that end, one of the things in that documentary that we were talking about in the beginning uh showcases is the struggle of iron man 2 and iron man 3 yeah because to me there aren't enough there's not enough source material to make that good and you he can only be so charming um the story you know my biggest thing 
is Iron Man 3 when Ben Kingsley plays an alcoholic mm-hmm. actor mm-hmm. rather than the number one badass of Iron Man. <laughs> yes. And yeah. I said, what an insult to the comic book. I yeah. said, that, that's, that's an insult. That's, there are times during the MCU, quote unquote, where Marvel denigrates itself. And that was that time. I, Iron Man 2, I didn't, I, I didn't have a big issue. Iron Man 3, I was offended. I wow. said, I said, that movie, that takes a comic book and says, we don't like your silly kitty comic books. We're going to do our own thing. And I said, wow, th- that did not speak to me as a fan. Yeah. That and Disney had already bought them and they wouldn't CGI a Mickey Mouse into the door of the Explorer watch. And I <laughs> don't, don't understand that. Well, I mean, the book. That's a uh, callback. If you've been listening to this podcast uh, that long, that is a callback to our Iron Man. <laughs> um, the book uh, we document quite a bit. And I'm sure your wife is very much aware of this, is that there was um, there was uh, a lot of friction between New York Marvel, publishing Marvel um, and uh, Marvel Studios in California making movies. And the creative committee, which we document in the book, um, was a real friction point that uh, hit its um, its uh, go no go moment by uh, civil war. Ironically, not ironically, <laughs> and my, and that's and, my favorite by a yeah, lot. Yeah, and it it became untenable for the requirements of what New York wanted and the Marvel Creative Committee, what it was imposing upon Marvel Studios, and some of the very things that you, you know, mentioned not liking came from that friction. And, you know, they talk about that in the in the book. Um, And the biggest things, uh, you know, uh, that they even say in the book was, you know, they didn't want to make Iron Man 2 immediately. Um, but New York really wanted to, and because it was a you, known commodity, and they needed to tell because the they shareholders keep, can, they exactly. didn't have the faith that Thor and Captain America were going to be any keep good. making hits. That's what we want. If everybody loves Robert, make you know do Robert, and you know one of their walkaways from that was uh, don't make a sequel because you think you should make a sequel. Make a sequel because you have the story to make the sequel. And, you know, that's, that was a lesson that they said very clearly, um, because again, our book is about the, the, the making of the studio, not the making of the movies, not right. the making of the actors. It's how do, how do we go from this thing that was uh, suddenly being able to fund their own movies and keep their characters to an empire and then learn lessons from every single uh, movie, the good and the bad. And um, and Iron Man 2 was a, a, a very strong lesson because it put a, a tremendous amount of strain on the relationship with John. Uh, you know, John had all of this pushback on things that were happening from the the Marvel Comics publishing side and the creative com- committee. And uh, yeah, and, and I would say that there are plenty of things that you would see from, let's say, I would say, right after Hulk going all the way to civil war that are directly friction points in the movies, uh, compromises. And it, you know, became the document very clearly in the book. Uh, once the community committee was like, no, we don't want Captain America and Iron Man fighting <laughs> in the finale. And they went, wait, what? Like, like, what do you mean? You don't want that. And once you hit that point, they're like, you know, literally the Russos are like throwing tables and, and, uh, Robert's like, wait, what? And, you know, Kevin's like, no, like, you know, we've earned being able to tell the stories that we want to tell. And, and, and that was, you know, the, the end of, um, 
that dynamic and thing, things that you see after that did not have those same friction points any, anymore. More of the Hall of Justice in just a moment. You know, I love hosting this show, and obviously I want as many people as possible to hear every episode. I put a lot of effort into them. The reality, though, is that podcast discovery, whether you're a podcaster or a podcast listener, is hard. That's why I've partnered with the folks at Marble. M-A-R-B-Y-L. Not like marbles in your mouth like it sounds when I'm doing my podcast. Marble's AI identifies the five most interesting moments in a podcast episode and instantly transforms them into searchable, shareable clips called marbles. We've done over 300 episodes of the Hall of Justice, and we feature great guests like Kevin Smith, Zack Snyder, Ben Affleck, Samuel Jackson, more recently Jeff Johns, voice actors like Diedrich Bader, Phil Lamar, the late great Kevin Conroy has been on the podcast five times. Extraordinary writers as well. Plus the reviews, movie reviews for all the latest Marvel, DC, Star Wars reviews with our man, JC Reifenberg. We even have a Transformers insider, my man, Anthony Brucalli. Did you know we once did an episode about rape culture and Jessica Jones? Did you know that the Transformers have a huge LGBTQ plus following? We've done episodes on those. And you can use Marble to search for that content. It's easy to create and share marbles from anywhere inside my episodes on the Marble app. And as a listener of the Hall of Justice on Marble, I think it's cool that anyone can go in and be the first to claim something that's said on the show as their own personally created marble. You can share it on Instagram, TikTok, social media, and if you're old like me, you can even put it on Facebook. You can be the first to marbleize a moment on the show, and it helps me get discovered. If you're a podcaster, join me in marbleizing your show. Just head to marble.com, that's M-A-R-B-Y-L.com to get started. And if you're a listener that doesn't have a podcast, it's a great and free way to directly support Sports with Friends to get the app, simply create and share one marble from something said on this show that you enjoyed, not something you hated. When you subscribe to my show on Marble, you'll get access to all the latest marbles as they roll out. Marble is a free app for both iOS and Android users, so head to marble.com. That's M-A-R-B-Y-L.com, or search Marble in the app or Google Play stores and change the way you listen to podcasts. The friction between uh, Louis Leterrier, I, mm-hmm. I think I'm saying his name yeah, correctly. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, the director of Incredible Hulk and Ed Norton, and ultimately the the the, the constant friction and wanting to make more uh, uh, fighting, you know, when because because the Ang Lee movie was so cerebral, you couldn't right. have a cerebral Hulk movie, and like some of the things they fought about are so stupid, and you're watching all of this evolve, and now I don't think there's a Marvel fan that doesn't see Ruffalo in the Hulk, like doesn't yeah. see Ruffalo's stamp. Um, just, just a quick thought on how Ruffalo took that role and ran with it and was frankly just in better stories. You know, there's a theme in this podcast. The theme is 
Ryan Reynolds was great as Green Lantern. It's not his fault he fought a cloud. Mm-hmm. That, that, that's, <laughs> that's the true. argument, right? So, so you know, uh, even even the, all the Henry Cavill people. Henry Cavill Absolutely. looks like Superman. He does awful movies. It's not his yeah. fault. It's true, exactly. You like you can you can only work with the material that you've got sometimes, even if everything seems like it should be perfect. And that's that's the magic of making a good movie. The great that... line, the great line in She Hulk when he goes. Uh, when 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 Jen Walters asks uh, Bruce Banner uh, if he if he's okay with him representing the abomination, and he says, "Oh, that was so long ago. I was an entirely different person then." That's yeah, a it was a, that was, line. That was a great line. A, a great aside. Yeah, no, I a thousand percent agree that um, you know, I mean, they've they've had to do some recastings in the in the, because of behind the scenes business things. Uh, you know, Don Cheeto. Don Cheadle and uh, and and absolutely um, uh, Mark Ruffalo uh, was a character. It was somebody that was looked at early on for the, for he the auditioned Incredible for, Hulk. For oh yeah, Incredible Hulk. he absolutely did and was very very much liked. Um, but uh, you know, again, those early two movies were not just um, hey, let's make a good superhero movie. It was if these don't succeed and make more money than they cost to make. There is no Marvel Studios. There is a huge loan <laughs> and we have literally leveraged a big old pack of characters that if we do not make this money back, those characters go goodbye. That is collateral. And um, and uh, they needed somebody like Ed Norton who had a bigger name at that time. And, you know, in some ways you're like, this, what? Like they're both like- <laughs> Right, but that's kind of what you mean by the investors in New York our reference, you know, they have as Absolutely. much influence as the Hollywood. But, but when you look at box office at that time and you go, Ed Norton has directed his own films and he's, and he's you know, been in big successes and, um, you know, Mark was up and coming still, you know, despite being a really well-respected theater and um, independent film actor, you know, and, and the, you know, the, the boyfriend or the, or the husband and several other like really well-loved movies like 13 going on 30 and stuff like that. But you're, you, you're going like, if I'm going to go to a movie based on face face recognition, it's going to be Ed Norton before it's going to be Mark Ruffalo at oh. that time. And oh. it's just, you know, just so happens that, uh, you know, fate kind of came back around for Mark. And yes, he's absolutely spot on perfect uh, for, for playing Bruce and, and playing um, Smart Hulk and, <laughs> and all the different iterations that they've sure. been able to grow with that character. But they really and, have gone to the comics, even though absolutely their, their thing with Universal, they can't make a Hulk movie. They've made a bunch of Hulk movies. Yeah, it's the the, the smart work around the, well, we can't make a top lining movie with the Hulk. That Ragnarok movie is Planet Hulk. Absolutely. It absolutely is. And it's also uh, it's it's it was better served as almost a buddy movie between Thor and and uh, and Hulk. Um, So that's what comics are. Comics would be you'd get an issue where you go Iron Man and the Hulk are in the same thing. And like, that's what how's that going to work? Exactly. Oh, my God. I had no idea I even wanted that. Now that I see it, I love it. Like make more of it. Yeah, absolutely. All right. One last question on phase one and then quickly. is it the arrogance, in your opinion, of the powers that be to say, not only are we hitting, if not home runs, we're hitting solid line drives with B's and C's, that they tell James Gunn, who had proved nothing at that yeah. point, go ahead and make a movie that no one's ever heard of. Like, no one's ever even tried. There wasn't a Guardians of the Galaxy oh, no. cartoon. Totally. There was nothing um 
what kind of arrogance is that? Or well, is it arrogance? Is, is, yeah. is it, or are they shrewd? T- tell me what your thought on just the impetus to make that franchise. Yeah, no, I would say, you know, because I think, you know, a lot of people take arrogance as with negative factor and there can be, there can be well-earned arrogance. And I think um, in the case of how that movie came into play and how it was developed, um, that was a movie that they had been working on with the writer's program for a while, um, trying to crack it and figure out how can we do this? Um, so it was definitely in play. It was not a like, oh, it just appeared and suddenly became this thing. Um, you have to remember from a contextual standpoint, Joss Whedon at that point was uh, was was ex- extremely in- in- integral uh, from Avengers um, forward um, to the success uh, and the rapport of the internal executives at Marvel Studios. They really loved what he did in terms of script doctoring. They really loved what they were able to do in terms of bringing all the Avengers together in a, in a monumental way. Um, and so uh, his recommendations made a lot of difference. And mm. so um, when they all, again, were still looking for filmmakers that felt uh, affordable, creative, some people that would come in and then understand, you know, that they have a connected universe. So that's not going to appeal to some people. I mean, of course they lost Edgar Wright because he, he came in at the very beginning and was, you know, Ant-Man was in their very beginning pocket of movies right. that they were going to make. And then, you know, he went on and made a lot of other things. And the longer the delays happened and the more they had this interconnected universe, the less it was attractive for Edgar to make his version of Ant-Man, you know, from the very beginning to then what Ant-Man needed to be once it was actually a functional um, uh, movie for them to make. So um, all of those factors, you know, were were part of them still just figuring out who do we bring into the fold, who's going to work well with us. And so, you know, James was very much a recommendation of Joss at that time, and that made a big difference to them. Um, uh, you know, uh, the they knew in-house for a while that that was a movie that they wanted to make. Uh, that was a movie that they wanted to try to figure out how to crack, and that it was um, something they felt like as dangerous, quote unquote, as Iron Man was, you know, let's do something that will surprise people. And that will um, also dig deeper into our characters that are far more obscure and less to the mainstream. And, um, you know, they, they, they kind of had the, the intention all along. And then the mixture of, of guns, uh, approach to the outsiderness of the guardians and uh the existing script that they already had from Perlman um and so that mixture all together developed that into um and ex- for in-house knowing having deep conversations with the creatives on that they were excited about it That's it wild. to them felt like the, the little spine tingle about why are we doing this we're doing this because we want to make movies that are going to make an impact and that are going to broaden the mainstream world's recognition of Marvel characters, um, it was excitement to them. It was a big risk. And so, um, you know, I, I would say it was more of a, a, of a, of a, let's, let's not get set in our laurels and let's still at this continue point, to push the envelope. continue yeah. to push the envelope and see where we can go and what will people, um, what will people accept if you see something uh, that comes at you that's really weird, but then you the tone works and the cast works and uh, 
the all of the elements needed to walk somebody into this world all of it snaps together and that's you know what guardians guardians was to them you know and i, and I misspoke earlier you know guardians of the galaxy is technically phase two right um, but, but developed early out, but it was developed in one so you're right, technically right there right uh, Captain America the Winter Soldier introduces Anthony and Joe Russo. Mm -hmm. um, they're integral to the, the 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 climax of this whole MCU. Yeah. Also, Christopher Marcus and Stephen McFeely, who wrote the, all the Captain so America great. movies, and are in, in, essential to the 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 ultimate end and yeah. uh, Civil War. Um, I've said all along, uh, to me, uh, Civil War is the best Marvel movie. Um, hmm. yeah, I would agree. Season, uh, yeah, season one of Jessica Jones and I love season one, man. They have talk okay. about finding a villain that's really hard to top. Boy, oh boy, oh, what they, they achieved with uh, having him established as a, an interior, frightening villain. I always said, Look at that, look at that for when yeah, you're watch, trying to find something. That. Yeah. I, I, mm -hmm. I stand by that. Daredevil's incredible, too. Don't, don't get me wrong. Uh, especially season one of Daredevil, but I loved all of Daredevil and I loved all of Jessica Jones, but season one of Jessica Jones, that's something that if you start it, you will lose the day. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you'll just, yeah, I agree. You'll, you'll keep going. So, but uh, also as an aside, um, there was a very harsh line between Marvel television and Marvel studios. And so all of those, you know, great first season, like you said, uh, Luke Cage, really strong. Um, Daredevil, like you said, there was nothing. They had nothing to do. The only thing they had to do was some development of the costuming for Daredevil. But they that was like a church and state. The, the best part, the two best parts of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. are season one when Winter Soldier comes out. Mm -hmm. And you find out that all the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. are actually Hydra. Like they, they, it directly impacted. And then... Later on, there's a scene where there's like a hostage crisis in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and they're watching news footage and the crawl on the bottom of the screen is Wilson Fisk's arraignment. Yeah. And I was like, oh, how smart. Like, oh my God, it feels like these are all chapters of a book. It, it does. But what I will say is that um, even in our book, the only, the only, um, the only thing that Marvel Studios takes responsibility for creatively is Agent Carter and the one shots. That's it. Everything else is independent. Um, that they was done by Marvel Television. They did not have any Death say. World, yep. And everything with uh, with Agents of Shield was following what was going on with the Marvel uh, with the right. MCU. So they were. Uh, Which was idiotic all... because none of the Avengers ever knew. All yeah, like all the of flaw the... with Agents of Shield is first of all, how did they not know Coulson's still alive? And the, the 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 Earth was in such peril. Where the f is Tony Stark? Like, what, what are we doing? Yeah, here? and it's so it was it was like kind of a um uh, and I will say a very cleverly orchestrated, backwards engineered TV show to kind of stay in the shadow of what the MCU was doing, but in no way. I think, you know, uh, you know, I used to cover Agents of, of S.H.I.E.L.D. for SFX Magazine and for other other outlets. And um, there was a, uh, uh, the job a, a there was a professional um, uh, business association that that there was an awareness by the writers of what was coming relatively with the MCU. But there was never a back and forth 
Um, it was always, well, we'll provide you some contextual things that you need to do because you can't do the things that we're doing in the MCU. So these are all no-fly zones <laughs> for right, your right, for right, your right. story writing. Um, <laughs> but then anything else that you're doing, so long as it's not bumping into our uh, canon and mythology, have fun with it. Uh, and that's how they came into kind of cleverly figuring out how to stay in the shadow and stay relatively relevant to what was happening in the MCU, but they were not working together in terms of crafting that. That's uh, brilliant. It, re it really is. Uh, absolutely brilliant. Um, all right. We're not doing con uh, chronological order, but I want to throw some, some conversations at you in the yeah, time sure. that we have. One of them has to be uh, Black Panther. Mm -hmm. And the question that to me has gone unanswered sure. is when did Marvel know that Chadwick Boseman had cancer? Now, here's my argument. Actors to get movies, it's been well documented, the, the Marvel couldn't get insurance on uh, uh, Robert Downey Jr. Right, yeah. But you get insurance on your actors, especially in action movies where there's all kinds of stunts. Yeah. Uh, he had to have medical exams to get insurance. The reason why I'm asking the question is Black Panther 2 mm -hmm. was developed while Chadwick Boseman is still alive. And, um, yes, yeah. And what it feels like is that they shoehorned his death into the movie, and I'll give you cases in point. Sure, sure. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, 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 it is backwards engineered based on his death. It's yeah, based on his death. Yes. So for example, the scene where um, Angela Bassett is addressing the United Nations. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's written and storyboarded for Chadwick Boseman. Yeah. And yeah. They, no, I could see like that. It, yeah. It's like a Microsoft Word copy and paste. <laughs> like the, the, the scene where um, Shuri is meeting with the Submariner. Yeah. Sure. And he's seeing the lair. That's that's him. That, that that was supposed to be him. And they shoehorned him in. And what I thought was insulting to the viewers, because I loved the first Black Panther. Yeah, I, I really, really. I, we a, saw an early cut a of that. Brilliant film. Yeah. Yeah. I thought that they did T'Challa completely wrong in that the guy died twice. <laughs> he was killed yeah. by Killmonger. And he was snapped into feathers by uh, by by Thanos. Mm -hmm. He survives both of those. And in a time after COVID, he's going to die from an undisclosed illness off camera. Yeah, I would or say your Marvel do better, do do better to your character. They did wonderful to Chadwick Boseman. That, that movie, yeah. Love Letter to Chadwick Boseman. It's a slap in the face to T'Challa. Well, I mean, one, that situation uh, for them was always about Chadwick. Um, they did not know that he was sick. Uh, we were- Wait, he, we, he got insurance for Infinity War and Endgame and they didn't know he was yeah, sick? Because he, yeah, because he was not that degree of sick that you can't work or that there would be issues with. They did not know. Ryan did not know. They did not know. And it was, I can tell you from experience, when we all found out that he had passed away, we were all devastated and exactly how that went through us, how it went as authors, how it went through that, that entire studio was shock. And it was entirely shocking to um, Ryan. And we 
you know, Ryan's an extraordinarily thoughtful and emotional human being and uh, his connection to Chadwick and what they wanted to do with that character um, was intensely personal and it was intensely uh, emotionally just, you know, destructive uh, to not have known the struggles that he was going through and to have lost him. You know, that was uh, monumental to the studio, was monumental to Ryan. And of course it was monumental to fans of Black Panther and how much he was adored in that role and how great that movie was. It was just a great movie. And his introduction was amazing, um, uh, you know, in Civil War. And then it was uh, oh, every time really... he appeared, uh, you know, whether it was Infinity War or, or Endgame. And then, you know, of course his own movie. Every when he shows up at the end magnetic. of Endgame and gives magic. that wink to to Steve, to uh, Christopher Abbott, I, I mean, wow that that's a, that's his best acting. He yeah, he's it, a movie it was, star, it, man. It's a masterclass. Yeah. yeah, just incredible. Um, so you know, uh, the thing that I having interviewed Ryan, having known uh, the deference that they wanted to give Ryan, because again, in house, it was one of the most positively received critical. Um, movies, critically received movies at Marvel Studios, uh, what he was able to bring about with that movie, how how much it was respected from the awards perspective, how much it, it changed the culture, how much it was able to accomplish what they wanted to accomplish with more inclusive superhero representation that had been a very difficult thing for them to do for quite a long time because of, of that uh, ongoing issues with, with New York. Um, this was it hit everything that they had hoped hope for and then some um and so they were never going to um say to ryan um here's here's we have to look at character first it was this is an intensely personal relationship you had with chad uh you guys had talked about what you wanted to do with a second black panther movie and and so they deferred very much to how ryan wanted to handle that and the first thought was um you're never going to get it right you're never going to please everybody. Um, and at the end of the day, as people, they had to please um, their legacy uh, for Chadwick, who had started the role, who had established the mythology of Wakanda in, in this MCU. And so, um, you know, we watched it happen. We watched, you know, how people were not happy with how T'Challa, uh, you know, again, like you just said, ha had to die again. Um, but that was the purest form of uh, Ryan's heart saying this is what was needed based on our friendship, on how we established this character, the conversations they had um, about what that second script was going to be. And uh, and at the end of the day, uh, it was never just about the character for them. It was always about what he represented, about what the legacy was going to be. and. Superhero and superheroes and representation, especially when it's a, a character that had um, been delayed, uh, you know, in coming into the MCU for so long, everybody's gonna, it's gonna mean different things to different people. And for comic book, pure comic book lovers, there's gonna be a, this is how I would like to see that character go on. This is how I would like the legacy of that to happen. But the people that made Black Panther and the people that love Chadwick and the people that knew that he was part and parcel with that character from their perspective um, saw it differently than comic book uh, aficionados and lovers of that character and never that was never going to overlap in a satisfying way for everybody okay what's marvel's play there did did kevin feige say ryan you've earned it do what you got to do Absolutely. Absolutely. It was what do you, what do you want? Uh, what do you want Wakanda forever to be? He wrote the movie. 
uh, he, he had to obviously rewrite the movie um, with Chad's death. And then there were major conversations between Nate Moore, who was the executive on that. And then there was, uh, of course, huge conversations with Kevin, uh, Kevin and the rest of the executives and the rest of the cast, who, if they also wanted their input about um, how do we all feel about walking into the story. Um, Ryan very much uh, expressed uh, that script to his cast before it was, you know, a, a, a locked draft in any kind of way. He wanted their their active input, um, and yeah, I mean that that is something that um, I think a lot of people uh, misunderstand about the MCU, which is that you know there's this kind of automaton kind of. Um, you know, uh, false truth that a director comes in and we tell you this is what it looks like, this is how it's colored, this is how the storyboards are going to be. Um, we, we, we take some of your input, um, but ultimately you're a part of the machine. And that is not how Marvel Studios operates. We watched it. I saw what <laughs> She-Hulk says. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, I'm, just exactly. kidding. I'm just kidding. That's, that's them poking fun of themselves. But yeah, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> but the but the family aspect of... of um, filmmakers that have come in um, and had helped them grow and find a voice and find success, even if it was, you know, sometimes not, um, uh, it was a partial success because, you know, they, they, or it was a full out, full, full, full bore success. They have a, a deep appreciation for all the people that helped them move stepping stone to stepping stone all the way through, especially those first, um, those three uh, phases because that was really, that was the development of the grand experiment. And so Ryan was um, an, an incredibly important stepping stone for them in terms of being able to bring that character, realize it, listen, they had worked on that character for, for from phase one. They wanted a Black Panther movie all the way back in the writer's program, which we talk about in the book. And, um, it was not able to be realized until far, far deeper into the, than they wanted it to be. And so when Ryan was able to bring it to life in the way that they that they had hoped, um, that that is a that is a level of trust from Marvel Studios that they will defer to to the director. And uh, that was absolutely the case with Wakanda Forever. Fascinating. Um insight i mean what, what <laughs> i wish i knew you then um, <laughs> uh, it, it doesn't change any of the opinions of course it doesn't absolutely it, it, and it, everybody's it, entitled to that i mean of it's, course it's all of valid course. yeah it is a it is a love letter to chadwick boseman yes and that's it what is. it was it was meant to be um from right. from the La creative last question on this last question on this i promise was there consideration for an opening scene where he's wearing the costume fighting someone um i'm sure there were many drafts and i uh, that as embedded as we were we were not given drafts of no of no, no but what it looks like from an educated observer a journalism major who who, who understands sure. the way things are it looks like that movie was storyboarded and the production sets were built when he died and they couldn't make something new and they they hadn't built no they hadn't they had not um built the sets there were well, once pre-production starts, there's a lot of work that's done. So there, there may have been boarded out sequences. There may have been even a, an opening, um, several drafts where they had worked on an opening for what they wanted to do. Um, but once I, I can guarantee you this, once Chadwick died, it was pencils down for everything. And then there was a, a, a period of mourning where no one touched anything. It was a 
it was a first for that studio to have to experience that. It was a first for um, people navigating losing um, such an integral actor to their uh, repertoire and to their to their ensemble. And um, it was an experience when I mean, we have a, a beautiful tribute tribute to him in the book. Um, that was generated based on the morning, you know, mm -hmm. of, of losing him. And so I, I there okay. with authority, uh, everything stopped. And then it was, what of this, of this script can exist, what has to change because it was all about T'Challa and then um, what characters are going to carry on the mantle. And that was again, a conversation that was had with Kevin and Lou and Victoria ryan and then with the rest of the cast that was going to have to bring that to life because uh, you know if anybody in that cast said i can't do it ryan was going to respect that you know um there had to be a lot of sitting and thinking about do am i ready to do that as a character and to take up a mantle we have to regardless but but the doing of it am i ready to do that and that was a lot of what the conversations were as they started moving back towards everyone agreeing Yes, a sequel needs to continue to be made, and we have to figure out what, what does that look like uh, without it. Tara, this has been wonderful. Um, I hope this is okay to ask. Uh, I don't want this episode to go too long, and there's still so much I want to ask you. Thank you for doing this, and can we continue this next week? Such a great, smart conversation. I really appreciate um, you having me. Thank you. More on the state of the Marvel Cinematic Universe next week on the Hall of Justice podcast. Can't believe it or not, I'm walking on it.